You're going to love this. Just love it. Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today in honor of the Juneteenth federal holiday, so please enjoy our interview with criminal justice advocate Theda Murphy, co-director of No Exceptions Prison Collective, a nonprofit grassroots initiative in Nashville, Tennessee, from November 7th, 2022. Voters in five states this year are actually voting to end slavery. Seriously. Last week, we discussed a bunch of the propositions that are on the ballot out here in California, from further legalizing gambling to increasing taxes on millionaires to help pay for the transition to clean energy in California, to an attempt to ban flavored vaping liquid, even though doing so will likely help kill thousands of California residents who won't otherwise be able to quit smoking. But... In five states this year, from the so-called red states of Alabama, Louisiana, and Tennessee to the theoretically liberal bastions of Oregon and Vermont, voters will be voting to, yes, end slavery or at least indentured involuntary servitude. And to be frank, I'm not all that certain that I can tell the difference. When slavery was outlawed in the U.S. in 1865, the 13th Amendment included one exception, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That's how the amendment reads. So the the 13th Amendment ended slavery Except when used as punishment for a crime. In that case, slavery and involuntary servitude was apparently no problem. Back in 2020, Senators, uh, Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon and Congressman William Lacey Clay of Missouri introduced a joint resolution in the U.S. House and Senate that would remove the 13th Amendment's so-called punishment clause, the language that accepted convicted prisoners from the ban on slavery and involuntary servitude. Said Congressman Clay at the time in a statement, quote, our abolition amendment seeks to finish the job that President Lincoln started by ending the punishment clause in the 13th Amendment to eliminate the dehumanizing and discriminatory forced labor of prisoners for profit that has been used to drive the over incarceration of African-Americans since the end of the Civil War. Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Ed uh, Markey of Massachusetts, among others, co-sponsored the amendment at the time, which earned the support of social justice organizations like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Color of Change. Merkley and Clay, in their release at the time, called the punishment clause in the 13th Amendment indisputably racist in origin and in impact. Indeed, 
Since the South relied on slave labor for its economy in the 19th century, that line in the amendment was used as a loophole to continue the forced labor of black Americans who were imprisoned, according to the nonprofit Equal Justice Initiative, which works to end mass incarceration. It will come as no surprise then that the punishment clause led to higher rates of arrests among black Americans throughout the Jim Crow era through the war on drugs in the 1980s and beyond. The bill's co-sponsors said at the time by effectively creating a, quote, financial incentive for mass incarceration. The measure in Congress has been sort of stuck there as of 2020. Changing a U.S. constitutional amendment is a heavy lift, no matter how obviously correct it may seem to many of us at this time. Updating the 13th Amendment would require two-thirds of both chambers of Congress and three-fourths of state legislatures to agree. A daunting task in a nation right now that can't seem to agree on much of anything, apparently even abolishing slavery, incredibly enough. The constitutional penalty, slavery as a punishment for crime, has incredibly remained on the books more than 150 years later in more than a dozen states. But next Tuesday, voters in Alabama, Louisiana, Vermont, Oregon, and Tennessee will be given the opportunity to exercise the punishment from their state's constitutions once and for all. The proposed amendments to those state constitutions would either explicitly rule out slavery and indentured servitude as potential punishments or remove the terms from state law altogether. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? State-level advocates hope their efforts can gin up enough momentum to prompt a change at the federal level. If their populaces vote for this at the state level, said Bianca Tylek, the executive director of Worth Rises, a nonprofit that is campaigning to remove the clause from the 13th Amendment, then we have to believe that their congressional representatives will also have to support it as a federal measure. The hope, says Theta Murphy from the No Exceptions Prison Collective, according to CNN, is that a critical mass of states will remove the exceptions in their state constitutions and provide a strong foundation for a movement to repeal and replace the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And while I find it somewhat remarkable that we're even discussing something like this, I am delighted nonetheless to be joined today by Theda Murphy, the co-director of the No Exceptions Prison Collective, a nonprofit grassroots initiative based in Nashville, Tennessee, dedicated to ending mass incarceration and focused on sentencing reform, prison conditions, abolition of all private prisons, not to mention who to thunk it, the abolition of slavery an involuntary servitude in the year 2022. Oh, Theta Murphy, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, thanks for having me. And I, you summed it up so perfectly. Well, I'll tell you, I got a lot of questions here, nonetheless, Theta. Uh, <laughs> some of the some of the state constitutions proposing these ballot measures this year already disallow slavery, but they say nothing about indentured or involuntary servitude, uh, or they, you know, just simply allow it uh, as Alabama's current constitution would uh, unless a measure to rewrite pretty much the entire constitution 
is uh, adopted that would remove the uh, punishment of crime using involuntary servitude for that. But I'm having trouble. What's the difference between the two, between slavery and involuntary uh, servitude? I, 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 well, there really is there really is no difference between them, especially now that we don't have like the legal institution of slavery anymore. Mm-hmm. There really is no difference between slavery and involuntary servitude. <laughs> so, so when the when the uh, Alabama Constitution, for for example, right now says no form of slavery shall exist in this state, and then it goes on to say uh, there shall not be involuntary servitude other than for punishment of a crime. That's the part they'll be taking out. Uh, at this point, I, I don't know how you can have uh, no slavery, but yes, involuntary servitude. Right, because, you know, according to to us, mm-hmm. any type of forced labor mm-hmm. is slavery, and, and period. Yeah. Uh, and should not exist in the United States in 2022. Now, I'll get to the so-called liberal states like Oregon and Vermont in a second, but in your own home state, uh, Theda, of Tennessee this year, the measure on the, uh, on the ballot asks that slavery and indentured servitude shall be Uh, quote, forever prohibited while including nothing in this section shall prohibit an inmate from working when the inmate has been duly convicted of a crime. Is that sufficient to end the so-called slavery exception in the great state of Tennessee? It is. Um, In Tennessee, people are not uh, sentenced to hard labor, Mm -hmm. as in in Louisiana and Alabama, they can be. So just moving that exception Mm -hmm. is enough, and that sentence takes out the element of coercion. They cannot be forced to work. Well, that's what I was going to say. So even if it's not hard labor, but let's say easy labor, let's say answering telephones for an airline, as you know, is sometimes the case uh, mm-hmm. in, in many prisons around the country, uh, mm-hmm. would, would that be ended? Uh, and, and by the way, I believe the average for that type of work is about $1 an hour around the country. So it would end it, at least in Tennessee, as far as forcing uh, uh, prisoners to have to do that? Right, and um, that was language that the Tennessee Department of Corrections asked us to put in, because mm-hmm. in Tennessee, work programs um, are not coercive. They're voluntary. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they wanted to make, to make sure that, that passing this would, would not prevent them from having work programs. So that was why they asked us to put that additional sentence in there so they could continue to have work programs, which on their face are voluntary. Now, uh, interesting you say on their face. Uh, Any idea why the measure is suddenly on the ballot in Tennessee this year versus, for example, in 2020 uh, or I don't know, for any of the more than 150 years since the 13th Amendment was adopted to theoretically free the slaves? Well, it is it is actually a process that for us started in 20, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. And um, my co-director at No Exceptions had been working as a chaplain inside uh, one of the maximum security prisons here in Tennessee mm. and, and making relationships with um, the folks on the inside and getting into conversation with them about their conditions in their life. They, well, they said to her, you know, nothing that you do 
will change because we are considered slaves. Mm. And she was an attorney. She said, no, that can't be. I, I, you know, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. And then she went back and actually read it mm. and said, oh, there's a huge exception there. Mm. And so legally, they are second-class citizens. Mm. And so that's how the initiative in Tennessee got started. It was something that started that was started behind the prison walls, mm. something that um, insiders themselves wanted and have been behind from the beginning. So the state process in mm-hmm. Tennessee is that it has to go before uh, any constitutional amendment has to pass the state legislature mm-hmm. twice, mm. two, two consecutive sessions. Okay. So we started that process in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, and it passed the two sessions, and pretty much unanimously. We only had a handful of no votes at the end. I mean, literally five at the end. And, um, and what were their reasons, by did, the way? What were their reasons for voting against this one, Dita? Uh, well, uh, one of them I didn't quite understand. Uh-huh. The, the reasoning was, well, that will, will we have to now be forced to give people jobs? Okay. Um, will they be able to sue us because we don't have enough jobs to give them? And I don't know where that came from, <laughs> where that reasoning comes from. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that was that was one. Okay. And then the other one was, this is hard to understand. We don't understand what's going on here. Literally, the the ballot measure is two sentences. Right. But this is too difficult for and complicated for us to understand. Yeah, um. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. <laughs> now, but by the way, other than other than hoping to, you know, goose the possibility of rewriting the federal Thirteenth Amendment, you say that you know coercive labor in Tennessee is already not allowed. So, will this measure in your state, if it's successfully adopted, will it have any actual material change in Tennessee? No, no. But it's still not symbolic. Mm-hmm. And the and the reason is because now you will have, I mean, right now people people are second class citizens. Right. People are considered subhuman. People are considered property. Mm-hmm. So changing that and having it so that that people are no longer considered property mm-hmm. is a huge thing. Yeah. And there is no provision as it is written now that says people reta- regain their full citizenship. After serving time, mm. there's nothing in there that says that. So people who who are convicted of a crime become permanent second class citizens according to the letter of the law, and that can't that can't be allowed. Now, many of the concerns, uh, Theodore Murphy, that I've been reading up on uh, on this is that you know removing the indentured or involuntary servitude exception might somehow affect the ability for states to use. Prison labor, which is a $500 million a year industry, as I understand it, in the U.S. for ridiculously low wages uh, that are somehow allowed to avoid both state and federal minimum wage requirements, as far as I can tell. Oregon's ballot measure on this would remove, quote, all language creating an exception and makes the prohibition against slavery and involuntary servitude unequivocal. But... 
Democratic State Rep. Barbara Smith Warner said that while uh, she would welcome a discussion about the ending of the prison labor movement entirely, the intent of this measure was to not eliminate prison industries. And where such industries exist, uh, are they are they actually voluntary? And I, you know, mentioned that must be a dollar an hour. Yeah. So, so yeah. the payment that they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they work for Tricor, which is the the corporation in Tennessee, mm-hmm. is actually more than they would than they would get just having a regular job. Really, uh, a regular job in the prison. They're getting more money. Okay, a regular so job they're, in they're, the in the prison, not necessarily um, a regular a job. Ride. Okay, okay, right, right, right. Uh-huh. So those are the high paying jobs. So that's their incentive to want those jobs. And and um, our experience with people in, inside is that they definitely do want to work. Mm-hmm. They want to work. They want the opportunity to be able to contribute uh, to their family. And plus, there are so many other fines and fees, such as for phones, fines and fees when they when they're getting mail, fines mm-hmm. and fees for anything that they want to get out of commissary. And mo- and these days, most anything that they need, they have to get it out of commissary. So they don't want to be a financial burden to their family in doing that. So they want to work, right? Well, yeah, I, and and I understand that, but shouldn't they not only you know absolutely be voluntary whether they want to work or not, but uh, shouldn't these jobs be required to meet you know state or federal minimum wage requirements? I mean, they are still doing work. They're still doing work for companies. I, I I don't know. It seems to me they, they ought to pay them the minimum wage for doing the same work that everyone else does. Well, I mean, that is something that, that we, a discussion that, that can happen. Mm-hmm. It will not happen before this passes. We've got to get it passed mm-hmm. first before anything else, before we can even think about what the ramifications would be. I got you. And, you know, I can only hope I want to run through these states. We've we've got a lot of listeners in Oregon, and I can only hope that they get this one right. I will be shocked if they don't on Tuesday. But then there's Vermont. Well, I would hope that 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 that, uh, because I know they have had some pushback from the Sheriff's Association in Oregon. Mm. And I'm hoping that, you know, it won't be stymied because people are saying that it's that freedom is too expensive. Um, that's what happened in, in, in California, unfortunately. Um, what would it, co- what would it I'm cost? I'm hoping that won't happen. What would it cost in a state like Oregon when they say it's too expensive? Well, I don't know, but in Tennessee, we're actually, <laughs> they would actually be, be no economic ramifications. Uh-huh. You know, because like, like we said, people would still continue to, continue to be able to work. hmm So... And yet you say that California has turned down this amendment? Right, because they, they were, we thought that they were going to be on the ballot with us. Ah. But, uh, uh-huh, but at the last minute, as it was going through committee, the fiscal note came out at the very last minute with not enough time for them to even, even address it. Mm-hmm. And so um, the fiscal note had a high price tag, mm. and so it ended up not making it out of committee. 
Well, now I'm embarrassed for our state. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But at least this was not. So it didn't even make it onto the ballot, basically, at this point. Right. No. We, so we yeah. can we can still keep fighting for that, at least. Let me get to Vermont here before I, I uh, run out of time, which was, by the way, the first U.S. colony to uh, uh, to uh, abolish slavery outright, uh, but they still have the exception clause, the punishment clause, and that would be changed by this measure that is on the ballot on Tuesday to both both prohibit slavery and indentured servitude. But here it was interesting because when the proposition was announced over the summer, the Republican governor there, Phil Scott, came out in support of it, but Democratic State Senator Dick McCormick described it as uh, merely symbolic. He said it was an underwhelming response to legitimate demands of black people before going on to argue that the constitutional clause was, quote, rendered moot by the national outlawing of slavery with the 13th Amendment. But that said, uh, Theda, given what we saw happen when our corrupted U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, we saw, yeah. you know, hundred-year-old laws banning abortion without exception suddenly were immediately reinstituted. Isn't uh, Senator McCormick being a bit naive there in saying, well, it's already banned at the federal level, we don't have to worry about it? Yeah, um, yeah, and we've kind of heard some of that. Mm-hmm here in Tennessee, but the fact of the matter is that 13th Amendment also has that exception within it. Right. So it's not banned. It's not banned at the the federal level. Mm -hmm. This is part of the process of of how things get changed at the federal level. Mm -hmm. You have, a lot of times you have states begin to lead the way by changing their constitution. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, as I said before, that is what we are hoping will be the case that the states are going to lead the way and provide that that critical mass well, to, to move the national uh, constitution amendment. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm what I'm wondering. And uh, to be fair to uh, poor Senator McCormick in in Vermont, there he he does believe that quote ending prison labor is a reasonable policy proposal and we should get started on it. He says. Um, But he argues that the Vermont (laughs) Amendment does not do that, nor does it fix the uh, 13th Amendment. So I'm wondering how much uh, of an effect do we have, like historical precedent where we, uh, you know, how much of an effect will these measures uh, in these five states, if they pass, I guess, you know, will they actually have on getting us to the more important goal, I think, of amending the 13th Amendment itself to the U.S. Constitution? Well, I mean, three states have passed it, Colorado, Nebraska, and Utah. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, all very red Republican states. Mm. And they are beginning to have these discussions about, well, what what does it mean to now have people that cannot be treated like property that Mm. the state no longer owns? And what that means for for every aspect Mm -hmm. of a person who who is incarcerated. Can you deny them health care? What kind of food do you feed them? Mm-hmm. Do you have to charge them um, for their clothes? Those, those are the kinds of questions that begin to be answered or to be asked mm-hmm. because people are no longer property. Mm-hmm. 
The uh, Theta there uh, was five uh, states have it on the ballot this year. There was, uh, I think, two adopted uh, the, you know, got rid of the exception in 2020. I think another one did in 2018. Uh, that's eight states. Uh, how many other states are, are you concerned about? Is does uh, we know California is is one uh, beyond that? How many other states are we looking at? Where, you know, that still have this exception in their in their state constitution? Well, um, Ohio, I know, has, has been trying to do this for the longest, and they, and they can't. Mm. They haven't been able to get much traction out of their state legislature. Uh, uh, same thing in New Jersey. Mm. Texas is going to be on the ballot next year, but the thing about Texas that makes Texas, Texas unique is that they don't have the exception language in their constitution. What they are going to be doing is just affirmatively adding the language that affirmatively states uh-huh. that in, uh, that slavery and involuntary servitude is prohibited. Oh, good. Thank God. I thought you were going to say Texas doesn't have it in there, but they're going to add it next, <laughs> next no. time. Okay, good. Exactly. Uh, and uh, and that, provides, uh, that provides protection against the 13th Amendment in Texas. Gotcha. All right. Uh, before I go here, uh, Theta, I suspect there is not much polling. Or maybe there is, but I haven't seen it. Uh, is, is there polling on, on these questions? I know the media tend to be more interested in, you know, polling the horse races of actual candidates versus propositions. Yeah. But do you have any sense uh, if We've these will pass? We've had some internal polling. Yeah. We've had some internal poll, polling here in, um, in Tennessee mm-hmm. that shows that um, Republicans and Democrats are united against this and you know it's surprising to us in this period of division Mm -hmm. and in this deep red state nobody is for slavery nobody (laughs) will nobody at least will come out and say they're for right so so our polling says that this amendment will pass it will pass because um, more than half of the of the the voters that that were asked are are going to vote for it because they don't support slavery. Well, let's hope, if nothing else in this country at this time, we can all come together around the idea that we're against slavery. <laughs> Theta Murphy is the co-director at No Exceptions Prison Collective. You can find their work at noexceptionsprisoncollective.org. Uh, also, uh, on, on Twitter, I believe, uh, End the Exception. Is the uh, is the Twitter handle for this effort, and also abolishslavery.us. Theta Murphy is the co-director there. Really great speaking with you today. Uh, good luck uh, on on Tuesday and beyond. Please stay in touch as this effort moves forward, Theta. All right, thank you for having me on. Our pleasure. Okay, we'll take a. If, you know, <laughs> if if I can do nothing else beyond ending slavery before. Oh, I yeah. uh, quit doing this show, then it will have been something, I guess. I know. I laugh at the absurdity that this even, even has to be said and done. I mean, but really, it is a good not question. All, and it's not all that funny, is it? Yeah, it's not. Can we come together to, um, to be against slavery? Gosh, I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. We'll see in a few days. This is broadcast producer Desi Doyen again. Good news. In fact, voters in four states, Alabama, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont last November, did approve the ballot measures to change their state constitutions to prohibit slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for crime. In the fifth state, Louisiana, lawmakers trying to get rid of forced prison labor torpedoed their own measure, telling voters to reject it because it included flawed language that 
did not prohibit involuntary servitude in the criminal justice system. The Abolish Slavery National Network celebrated the historic victories after the vote, although more than a dozen states still have constitutions permitting slavery and involuntary servitude for prisoners. Coinciding with the creation of today's Juneteenth federal holiday back in 2021, Congress reintroduced federal legislation to revise the 13th Amendment to end the slavery exception. A constitutional amendment, though, must be approved by Congress and ratified by three-fourths of U.S. states. The struggle continues. You're listening to the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Does that make me crazy? Does that make me crazy? Does that make me crazy? Possibly. Yeah, possibly. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, crazy, but but also possibly disturbingly dangerous. You know, I got to wonder, you know, will we finally begin to see some pushback in Florida against Ron DeSantis? Remember, DeSantis is one of the few GOPers who supposedly did really, really well last year uh, in the November midterms in 2022 when Republicans across the country did not do well. DeSantis won by a huge margin, reportedly, in a state that does a terrible job of allowing the public to oversee its elections. And uh, does also a terrible job of allowing the public to vote in the first place, especially if they're from black and brown communities. Right. So there was really no investigation of that at all. Uh, Presume he won. I have no evidence that he did not. But I got to say, his numbers were really, really large in a year there where uh, no other Republicans, even ones who won, did not have numbers that large. Anyway, just tossing that out there again. Now, uh, because I want to talk about Ron DeSantis, I got to tell you, if a Democratic governor was doing stuff like Ron DeSantis is doing, instituting one big government mandate restriction ban after another, like the stuff that Florida's DeSantis is doing right now. Uh, frankly, there would be an endless around the clock campaign of absolute, you know, outrage from Republicans about it. If any Democratic governor behaved like this, was signing bills like this, was restricting and banning things like this, folks on the right would be so pretend outraged about it that there would be demands for a recall election. There would be right-wing militia groups planning to kidnap that governor (laughs) and everything else. So uh, anyway, uh, to start with uh, just the latest when it comes to DeSantis this week, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill into law on Monday essentially banning 
uh, b- banning state public colleges from hiring who they want to hire for whatever reason that they may wish to want to hire them. DeSantis signed a law on Monday that bans the state's public colleges and universities from spending money, in this case, on diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Well, that sounds terrible. And you thought diverge, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion was a good thing, right? Oh, that is just so 2022. <laughs> this has basically been used as a veneer to impose an ideological agenda. Uh, and that is wrong. And in fact, if you look at the way this has actually been implemented across the country, uh, DEI is, is better um, viewed as standing for discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. And that has no place in our public institutions. So uh, what he, so you see what he just did there? Now, DEI actually stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And DeSantis has just decided to make up three other words <laughs> that start with D and E and I. Discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. And say that that is, you know, the, the same thing, that one thing is the same as the other. And then he signs a law to ban it, which is a pretty neat trick. Just find something that your political opponents do that you don't like. Claim it is actually something else entirely and then ban the original thing that's actually being done. Very clever. Uh, but grotesque and almost certainly in violation of the U.S. Constitution. Remember when Republicans used to care about that sort of thing? Many institutions across the U.S. have DEI offices aimed at diversifying staff and promoting inclusivity for faculty and students. The location of the uh, bill signing on Monday, NPR notes, is notable in that DeSantis, uh, this was at New College in Florida, DeSantis has targeted New College to turn the liberal state institution, liberal arts institution, into a right-wing state institution where right-wingers, I guess, can be groomed as he would like them to be groomed, I guess. Uh, Not that anyone is being groomed anywhere, but that's what Republicans like to pretend that liberals are doing. Therefore, they're going to do it instead I guess. Yeah, that's their BS rhetoric. Earlier uh, this year, DeSantis appointed six new members to the school school's board of trustees, putting right wing allies of his in control of the school board. He's accused the school's leadership of overemphasizing DEI, along with critical race theory, which they call CRT and gender ideology, which uh, he characterized as not, quote, what a liberal arts education should be. DeSantis said on Monday that he's viewed DEI initiatives as a discriminatory practice. (laughs) So inclusion is discrimination. It's that good old doublespeak, remember? War is peace, up is down. Black is white, etc. We have always been at war with Eurasia or something like that. The new law also bans what can be taught in the state's higher education institutions. General education courses cannot, quote, distort significant historical events or include a curriculum that teaches identity politics. Whatever he thinks identity politics actually is. 
uh, nor uh, can it teach critical race theory, whatever he thinks that means. Again, you can imagine if any Democratic governor took this kind of big government stance, this big government control over, you know, the state educational institutions to force them to teach and or to ban them from teaching any variety of things based on uh, his or her own political ideology. If it was a Democrat, it's 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 kind of unthinkable, frankly, that that would actually ever happen despite the fact that Republicans like to pretend it happens. But here we are. We have a Republican doing it, doing exactly that same thing, ignoring the First Amendment in the process and claiming that Florida is for those who love freedom. What? Irene uh, Mulvey, the president of the American Association of University Professors, uh, said, when you see elected leaders demonizing educators and weaponizing education, it is a five alarm fire for democracy. She says it's important to understand that when governors attack DEI efforts, they completely mischaracterize them to create a straw man demon that they now have to do away with. The effort, of course, is uh, part of DeSantis's 2024 presidential campaign strategy to crack down on what he calls, quote, woke indoctrination in schools. Again, whatever that means. In the last two years, DeSantis has banned teachers in K through 12 from discussing sexuality and gender and his state education officials have rejected and banned dozens of math books math textbooks and social studies textbooks and if you are wondering where all of this is going well you don't really have to wonder anymore although i sure wish more people were talking about this florida's state education department has now rejected two new Holocaust-focused textbooks for classroom use while forcing at least one other textbook to alter a passage about the Torah or the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible, as the Jewish Telegraphic Agency reports it, in order to meet state approval. The books were rejected as part of a review of new K-12 social studies materials. According to documents provided by the state, the Education Department did not approve any new texts on the Holocaust this year. Following publication of this article, JTE, JTA reports, uh, the Education Department's Director of Communications in Florida told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency that the state has, quote, many textbooks and other approved instructional materials that support our efforts to make sure our students never forget about the horrific annihilation of Jews by Nazi Germany. What about the burning of books by Nazi Germany? Do they hope that uh, that's something that we'll never forget? Under DeSantis, JTA notes, the state has made an effort to clamp down on what he calls woke indoctrination, mostly regarding race and gender. The textbook's rejection, however, is the latest example of how that drive is affecting Jewish topics as well. And I'm reminded, didn't Ron DeSantis just get back from a visit to Israel at the end of last month? He did. 
Anyway, one of the years, uh, one of this year's rejected Holocaust textbooks was called Modern Genocides. And the other was an online learning course titled History of the Holocaust. Sounds terrible. Both were intended for high school students. Modern Genocides was rejected in part for its discussion of, quote, special topics prohibited by the state. So the state is prohibiting special topics. The list of such topics includes terms such as social justice and critical race theory. Hmm phrase that traditionally concerns a method of legal analysis, but that Republicans have used pejoratively to refer to discussion of systemic racism in the U.S. The department did not clear which prohibited special topics that the book Modern Genocides included. The company, which publishes History of the Holocaust, told JTA it had spoken with the Florida Department of Education and would appeal the state's rejection of its contest, uh, content. Meanwhile, another social studies textbook intended for grades 6 through 8 was forced by the department to alter a reference to the Hebrew Bible in order to meet state standards. According to state documents, the book's original version included a question for students reading, quote, what social justice issues are included in the Hebrew Bible. That had to be changed. That was altered to an approved version to replace it, uh, to replace the phrase social justice issues with the term key principles. What key principles are included in the Hebrew Bible mm. instead of what social justice issues? So now, apparently, even using the phrase social justice is, uh, pardon the irony here, verboten in the state of Florida. The state's rationale for the change was that the original phrasing used, quote, politically charged language when referencing the Hebrew Bible. So referencing social justice issues is now verboten, but key principles, that's just fine. At least until Republicans in Florida decide that key principles is a straw man demon that they must also strike down, just like they have with the words social justice. Does the First Amendment even apply in the uh, Sunshine State at all anymore? Do they even have that? Do they have the U.S. Constitution down there? DeSantis has also enabled parents to effectively remove Holocaust literature that they don't like from school libraries. A law passed last year allows parents to challenge instructional materials and books in public school libraries, and parents in the state have filed challenges that have led to the temporary or permanent removal of Holocaust literature on the grounds that they're inappropriate for children. Manny Diaz, Jr., Florida's education commissioner, said in a press release, quote, to uphold our exceptional standards, we must ensure our students and teachers have the highest quality materials available. Materials that focus on historical facts and are free from inaccuracies or ideological rhetoric. The state's Education Department announced on Tuesday that it had approved 66 out of 101 submissions of new social studies textbooks under its new rubric, some only after the publishers agreed to extensive changes to the text. 
mandated by the government, mandated by the big government. Boy, is Ron DeSantis lucky he's not a Democrat. The state rejected the other, rejected the other 35 textbooks that were submitted. Florida, thanks to its large population of school-aged children, is one of the biggest textbook markets in the nation. And some social studies textbooks publishers uh, this year preemptively erased some language about race and segregation in their books in order to gain entry into the market. So they pre-censored themselves. They absolutely did. Two points on that. One, uh, because it's uh, such a large market and they want to get into that market, they're willing to make the changes to get into the state of Florida, which means some of those changes, therefore, will be in the textbooks that are sold in all 50 states, thanks to whatever is on the you know campaign mind of Ron DeSantis in Florida. Your school children in other states are likely to suffer. And yes, they are preemptively censoring themselves. That's known as the uh, chilling of free speech, where institutions self-censor in order to meet the censorship that they expect to come from the big government. That has not ended well in the past, ironically enough. Go study what happened with book burning during the Holocaust, though apparently you may not be able to study that in Florida. And bringing this to uh, my attention over on Mastodon over the weekend, where you can find me at thebradblog at jorna.host, in bringing it to my attention, uh, human rights lawyer Kasim Rashid noted this is what modern day fascism looks like, adding, remember, the main reason that extremists would want to ban teaching about a past atrocity is to make it easier to enable that atrocity in the future. OK, then uh, one more. And, you know, I, I think I've got to go back, Des, about uh, two weeks at this point to find a story that doesn't creep me out today. <laughs> Sorry about that. This is one that I've been trying to get to for about two weeks. It's I don't think it's creepy. It's a little creepy, but it's less creepy. And it's actually uh, somewhat encouraging. Uh, Wisconsin's still conservative controlled uh, Supreme Court. You may recall that liberals have now been elected to take over the majority there, but that does not happen until the beginning of August. So it's still conservative controlled Supreme Court recently ruled that a hospital could not be forced to give a deworming drug to a patient with COVID-19, saying that a county judge did not cite any legal basis for ordering the facility to administer ivermectin. There's a blast from the past, right? Because a few days ago we were told that COVID is over. We don't have to worry about COVID at all, apparently, anymore. COVID, by the way, is not over, but the uh, federal emergency is. Nonetheless, uh, I digress. Ivermectin, <laughs> as you'll recall, became popular among duped right-wingers after MAGA commentators on TV and some far right, even some far right uh, quack doctors held up the anti-parasitic drug as a miracle cure for coronavirus. But the FDA has not approved it for use in treating COVID-19 and warns, warns that misusing ivermectin can even be harmful or fatal. The Wisconsin lawsuit is one of dozens that have been filed across the country seeking to force hospitals to administer ivermectin 
for COVID-19 because I guess, you know, someone saw it on Fox News or something. Yep, or any other right-wing media that is peddling this nonsense. The drug is commonly used in cattle, and it is approved for human use to fight parasites and certain skin conditions, but not to fight COVID. In the, again, uh, decision, the ruling by the still conservative majority Wisconsin Supreme Court, the high court ruled six to one in favor of Aurora Healthcare, with uh, three liberals and three conservatives in support. Only far right wing Scott Walker appointed Justice Rebecca Bradley dissented. The decision upholds an appeals court ruling against Alan Gall, who had sued Aurora in October of 2021 when doctors refused to treat his uncle with ivermectin. Gall was authorized to make decisions for the man and had researched the drug online <laughs> after his uncle was put on a ventilator uh, to treat uh, COVID-19 complications. Gall obtained a prescription for ivermectin from a retired doctor who had never met his uncle or his medical team, but hospital staff said that the drug did not meet their standards and they refused to administer it. So this guy filed a lawsuit. None of the information in the complaint that Gall subsequently filed against the hospital came directly from medical professionals, according to the court. The Waukesha County Circuit Court had ordered originally hospital staff to give uh, his uncle this drug. An appeals court overturned that decision after Aurora's attorneys argued the judge could not force a medical provider to give treatment that they had determined to be substandard. Quote, we do not know what viable legal claim the circuit court thought Gall had presented, said Justice Ann Walsh Bradley uh, in the court's opinion. So at least some sanity prevails in the Republican-controlled Wisconsin State Supreme Court for just a little bit. Can you believe it? Amazing. Uh, Gall was uh, represented, by the way, by the Amos Center for Justice. That is a right-wing Wisconsin law firm that has brought litigation against things like ballot drop boxes and promotes conspiracy theories about the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. Basically a law firm that promotes baseless conspiracy theories. So the Wisconsin Supreme Court is not insane, at least on this ruling, uh, even before uh, August 1, when the uh, uh, there will be a liberal majority once again on that court for the first time in 15 years. Quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report and Desi Doyen right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Okay. Speaking of good news from the courts, I uh, and I don't know if we, I don't know if this, if we'll have a good decision from uh, this particular court, but uh, a landmark case is now underway in Montana. Yep. Concerning climate change and just the fact that it has gotten to trial, that it has reached trial, that is already 
good news, I think. Yes, it is. As discussed by uh, Desi Doyen, no American idiot she, in <laughs> our latest Green News Report. There's no safe level of, of wildfire smoke inhalation for anyone. Raging Canadian wildfires threaten summer of smoke on both sides of the border. The fish simply can't breathe. Tens of thousands of dead fish wash up on a Texas beach. Plus, what do you want the state of Montana to do differently? They just need to take steps to mitigate their fossil fuel emissions. Montana kids' landmark climate lawsuit gets underway, putting the state on trial for failing to address climate change. All of those failures and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I just wonder, like, how would you guys get electricity out here if there wasn't fossil fuel usage? Wind, solar, renewable energy. Is this your first day in the media, lady? Man, this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, how, oh how, are we possibly going to get electricity if we don't use fossil fuels. It's just unthinkable, I guess. Apparently in Montana, the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And that lady is from Vice News. No wonder they're going out of business. What do you got for us today, Des? <laughs> well, first, Canada is still battling a truly unprecedented fire season, fighting 461 active fires that have burned nearly 20,000 square miles so far, driven by unseasonably hot and dry conditions. The dangerous smoke from the fires is triggering new air quality alerts on both sides of the border, including across the entire upper Midwest this week in the United States. During the recent smoke event in New York City, hospital emergency room visits spiked for asthma complications and respiratory illnesses. In an AP interview, Dr. Lauren Wold of Ohio State University warned that the smoke is likely to persist all summer. We're seeing exceptionally high levels. Um, in the last couple days um, because of these wildfires. And unfortunately, these levels will likely remain high until the fires are out. Also in Canada, in Alberta, farmers are warning of an imminent wheat crop failure due mm. to the same prolonged drought that is exacerbating the wildfires. In the Arctic, a new study warns that the North Pole is likely to lose its summer sea ice in the 2030s. That's about 40 years earlier than scientists previously predicted due to accelerating man-made global warming. A growing body of evidence links loss of Arctic sea ice to a slowdown in the jet stream, which in turn is increasing the intensity of extreme weather events across the Northern Hemisphere. And by the way, that's almost exactly what a report that Al Gore had cited had warned about decades ago at this point, and right-wingers have been beating him up for it ever since. Looks like he was uh, right again. Yep, it does. And in Antarctica, scientists are also sounding new alarms over the consequences of ice loss, which new evidence indicates is slowing down a critical deep-sea current that could have potentially profound implications for the global climate and marine life. 
In Texas, pretty bad and stinky. A popular beach south of Houston this week was closed after tens of thousands of dead fish washed ashore due to lack of oxygen, according to wildlife officials. That's because warming waters have less capacity to hold dissolved oxygen, and a new first-of-its-kind study warns that the same mechanism is also triggering mass fish kills in lakes. The researchers found that hundreds of lakes in the U.S. and Europe are also warming, also losing oxygen, and mass fish kills are becoming more common as global warming boosts lake temperatures. In the U.S. House, the Republican majority passed a bill that has zero chance of becoming law in order to block the Consumer Product Safety Commission from setting safety standards for natural gas-fired stoves, which studies confirm are significant sources of indoor air pollution. A recent investigation uncovered internal documents showing how gas stove manufacturers have known since the 1970s about gas stove air pollution. NPR reports that in the 1980s, Stove manufacturers developed a cleaner and more efficient burner, but never manufactured the new technology because it cost more and because consumers weren't demanding it. Finally, some good news. A landmark youth climate lawsuit is now underway in a Montana courtroom, the first in the U.S. to make it to trial. Sixteen young plaintiffs allege that state officials, by prioritizing development of fossil fuels, are violating the kids' rights to a clean and healthful environment that's enshrined in the state constitution. The Republican-controlled state just enacted a law barring state agencies from considering emissions or climate change in environmental reviews of proposed projects, lead plaintiff Ricky Held explained to Vice News why the kids took action. My generation and kids now, we can't wait for the next one to come along and fix this. But how, oh how, will they ever be able to get electricity without fossil fuels? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Oh! <laughs> That's how they'll do it. Yes! I get it now. Now, I just want Thank to point much. out, yes, yes that yes. the vice reporter that did that story yes. on Mont- in Montana... Who I was mercilessly cruel yes, to there. and yeah. mocking, yes, yes. She did actually a very good job. I highly recommend the report. We've linked to it at our website, greennews.bradblog.com. Except for that dumb question of, how are you going to get energy out here? How are you going to get electricity out here <laughs> And that was really the only misstep that she made All in right. the entire thing. We have uh, got to get out. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You you can find me on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at the Brad Blog. You can find Desi Doyen and her Green News Report as yep. well on Facebook, Twitter, or Mastodon at Green News Report. Very good. You and remember. by the way, you can find both the Bradcast and Green News Report now on additional podcast sites. Now that I have fixed Stitcher, they are both available there. And uh, Pandora is carrying both Bradcast and and Green News Report. All right, that's it. We got to get out. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 